Well, as was announced this morning, this assignment was made. I don't think it was made in connection with the Good Reunion weekend. And I apologize for those, to those of you that are here with the Good Reunion because you've heard all this. I want to give credit to Evelyn Brunk Bear. She's here with us tonight. She compiled this because I don't know what happened years ago. Uh, but we're going to talk about a couple things. Maybe some of you that have moved into our area will, be, will find interesting some of the people that have been involved, some of the different situations. Now in the adult Sunday school class this morning, we were asked how many people enjoyed history. And uh, there comes a point in your life when history means a little bit more to you. I don't know why that is. Uh, it has something to do with age, I think. But uh, so there are three different periods of time, right? There's the present, like right now. What I said two minutes ago is history. Anything that's already happened is history. And what's anything that's going to happen? Future, okay? So we don't know if I'm going to get through this speech tonight or not. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know what happened Saturday. We know what happened earlier today. So just a few thoughts about history. Another thing I remember hearing people say is one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Uh, that's more with events or with decisions that are made, that, especially those that have adverse effects. And people tend to repeat the same thing that maybe someone else has done. They, they don't understand uh, about history. And what I'm sharing tonight, uh, there's a couple interesting things. One is, originally this church wasn't supposed to be called Ebenezer. And we'll find out why it got the name Ebenezer. And then I don't know when it was, a year or so, maybe longer. I had a children's meeting and I talked about a little girl that gave flowers. You younger people remember that? She's buried out here in the cemetery. Her name was Nita Coger. Uh, and the flowers brought $500 to the building project of this church, the original church. Now $500 isn't much, is it? But the church only costs $1,600 to build the original church. So that's a third of the money came from a little girl giving flowers and then dying, I forget, weeks, months later. And it touched the heart of the man that was passing through here. So, <clears throat> Evelyn, I've pulled from a couple of your uh, articles. She said it wasn't copyrighted. She passed it out, so I guess it's public domain. But um, I'll try to make this interesting. Unfortunately, I have to read most of it. Um, it was October of 1904 that preacher Henry Good and his wife Susan and daughters Susie and Mary left Concord, Tennessee. Presumably by train, they traveled to Halifax County in southern Virginia to establish a new home and to pioneer a new Mennonite church in a community known as Wolf Trap. Now, Wolf Trap is, was down here at the railroad track. Best I know. That was, that was the train depot, if you wanted to take a train. This move was not the first one they had made in the interest of ministering to scattered flock. Henry H. Good was born in Rockingham County, Virginia in 1850. He was the son of Henry and Elizabeth Brunk Good, grandson of Bishop Daniel Good. He married Susan Ressler of Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1871. They moved to Elida, Ohio in 1876. Henry H. Good was ordained first minister for the Pike Mennonite Church in Elida in 1880. By 1888, the Goods learned of a need for a minister at the Concord, Tennessee, where an Amish community and a Mennonite group were both without resident leadership. So there were two different groups of people there, and they didn't have resident ministry. 
They lived in adjacent valleys. After an investigative group, Henry H. Good moved his family there in the fall of 1888. It was quite a job to unite two groups into a harmonious congregation, but for a time, the amalgamation was successful. By 1900, however, some of the first settlers had died and some were moving to other communities. The group never agreed to join a conference, although it was known that Henry H. attended sessions of Virginia Conference when he could. During the spring session of Virginia Conference in 1903, Henry H. was approached by Deacon Isaac Grove of Augusta County, who said he was thinking of locating some of his children in Halifax County, Virginia. He asked Good to stop by and preach for them passing through that area. Brother Grove, however, did not follow through with locating any of his family in Southern Virginia at the time. Nevertheless, Henry H. Good paid a visit to the area in late 1903 and was attracted by the character of land, the prices of which farmland of good quality could be obtained, the, the adaptability of soils to general farm products, the water supplies, and climatic advantages. He made the decision to move to Halifax County, praying that a Mennonite church could be established there. To publicize the area he found, Good wrote articles for church papers and individuals describing the county and telling of what he saw as possibilities. A year later, in the fall of 1904, Goods arrived with their possession and purchased a 200-acre farm where they soon built a house. And that would have been down here at Wolf Trap. Henry H. was a man of vision. He saw opportunities as mission to be accomplished. He seems to have been happy in his calling and ready to minister wherever there was a need. He envisioned a new church in this community where people were not used to attending church services. But he did not know he only had four years to invest in the new church he would pioneer. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Proverbs 29, 18. Vision was alive and well in the Henry H. Good, and only eternity will reveal the number of people who were saved because of his ministry and faithfulness. Now, uh, some of you that are farming, you probably wouldn't have seen the vision he saw here for adaptability and, I mean, it's not a, it's, it's not a major ag place, but maybe from where he had been before, it, was pretty good, I don't know. <clears throat> when the goods moved to Wolf Trap, they bought a farm with acreage on both sides of the railroad and built a two-story house. Along the railroad right-of-way was a building owned by the Union Railway, which Henry H. secured for the purpose of holding services. The Mennonites used it on Sunday morning. The Baptists used it on Sunday afternoon. The building had white clapboard siding, was heated by a wood stove with a tall stovepipe that went up through the roof. The benches were quite primitive. In other words, they were different than what you're sitting on now, and I'm going to describe them to you just a little bit. <clears throat> a plank to sit on and a plank to lean against. So it was a bottom seat, a space, and a back plank. Those benches played part in an incident that almost caused Henry H. Good to lose his composure one Sunday while preaching. A neighbor man who sometimes came to church, it appeared for no other reason than to sleep, decided to take a nap. He slouched on a bench, pushed his legs through the opening in the bench ahead of him, and went to sleep. On this Sunday, deep in sleep, his body began to slide down and down and down until he fell off the bench. But his legs remained stuck in the bench opening in front of him, and he was helpless to get them free. His predicament was a source of amusement to those sitting around him, and soon even preacher Henry H. Good saw the humor in the situation. His son, Henry, which would be grandpa to 
Nathan and Joy and Evelyn and Rosie and uh, witnessed the event. He said up until then he had never seen his father laugh in church. But the preacher reportedly held his hand over his mouth, paused a moment, and on with his sermon without comprising his, compromising his dignity. <laughs> Nineteen oh eight proved a very <clears throat> trying year for the good family. In the spring, Henry H. caught a severe cold and cough from which he never recovered. He did very little work on the farm after June of that year, and in the words of his wife, he just fell away and got weaker. His last sermon preached on September thirteenth, and his text was Prepare to Meet Thy God from Amos. 412. He died of what must have been pneumonia in October 10 of 1908 at the age of 57. He was reported to have been cheerful and resigned to the time of his sickness. Henry H. had already selected a site for the church, so he had picked out this spot to build a church on and a cemetery a mile west of his home. He chose the name for the building which would house the fledgling, fledgling congregation. He was buried on the site he had chosen even before the property had been officially bought. Within six months of his death, the church called its first business meeting, elected trustees, officially named the future location Pleasant View. Agreed to purchase the two acre property for a sum of $40. They borrowed the money from one of the church members to pay for it and agreed to fence part of the ground for a graveyard as soon as possible or convenient. Preacher Elam Horse continued to pastor the flock whose membership grew number 10 in November of 1908. By January of 1909, the membership had risen to 34 largely because of people moving in, permission was given to ordain from Virginia Conference, and on June 12, 1909, ordination called Gabriel Brunk, who had moved to Wolf Trap from Elida, Ohio, to the ministry. That same day, a new arrival, Deacon Eli Kaufman, was called to carry out deacon responsibilities in the new church. And by the summer of 1910, the membership had increased to 53 members. The new church also had a vision for the needy around the world, probably because of informative articles in church papers. On November 25, 1908, Thanksgiving Day, an offering was taken for India mission work. It amounted to the grand total of $7. The first revival meetings at Wolf Trap began Christmas Day of 1908. Brother Erasmus Shank was the speaker. Eight souls made good confessions, six of them with the last names of Connor. Brother Shank received permission from Bishop A.P. Heatwell in Harrisonburg to baptize the new Christians before he left the community, and that was accomplished January 3 of 1909. So a lot different than what we do now. They had revival meetings late December and baptized the 1st of January. So another thing I'll say about history. Uh, history is a recording of what has happened. It doesn't necessarily mean it's precedent. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the best or the worst. It's how it happened. The struggling church at Wolf Trap had other discouraging events to deal with. One member sadly got into financial trouble, damaging the church's reputation. He and his family left, their left the community, broke their connections with the church. Some locals who had accepted Christ joined the church and fell away. Because Ebenezer was geographically isolated, from other Mennonite churches, young people often lacked fellowship with other Mennonite youth. They didn't run to Harrisonburg every weekend or every other weekend. or uh, You didn't travel that way 
at that time uh, for numerous reasons. They didn't have uh, phones to text or to call their friends. They, uh, if you were in a remote area, you were in a remote area. And that's sort of how it stayed. Some locals who had accepted Christ joined, uh, let's see. That need was particularly met from some of them. The, the isolation part was met when they started attending short-term, uh, short Bible term at Eastern Mennonite School in Harrisonburg, which is, became Eastern Mennonite uh, College and now Eastern Mennonite University. But they used to have a short winter-summer Bible term that the young people would get, where they broadened their acquaintances. Brother Joseph Driver, when he was bishop, often invited sisters from Augusta County to accompany him on his regular trips to South Boston so there could be some outside fellowship for the Ebenezer women. In 1920s, some of the young people, <coughs> when they were of age, left Halifax County to work in other Mennonite communities. Those experiences provided fellowship and new friends. It must have been a discouraging time for those who stayed and faithfully carried on. Besides regular services, community prayer meetings held in homes, these meetings were well attended and, attended and great interest was shown. Many were led to look deeper into the scriptures and some were added to the church. One of the most outstanding additions to the church during this period was Otis Sneed, who came from a missionary Baptist background his convictions grew as he studied in the community prayer meetings, despite much opposition from his wife, his friends, extended family. He joined the Mennonite Church about 1931. So Otis Sneed was the minister here for years, and my family moved here in 1965 to uh, my dad to relieve him of his responsibility. So a lot of this history is very accurate and documented, but let me read Otis Sneed's testimony. Uh, he wrote this himself. It's entitled, Why I Became a Mennonite. It was written in, or published in Sword and Trumpet, first quarter of 1950. By reasons of request, yet reluctantly, I give testimony of my experience into changing my fellowship from the Missionary Baptist to the Mennonite Church. My only purpose here is to help fellow travelers into a closer fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust it will all be to the glory of God. I wish to cast no undue reflection on the Missionary Baptist Church, nor upon those who opposed me while I was counting the cost. At the age of 10, I confessed Christ as my personal Savior, united with the Missionary Baptist Church, and enjoyed fellowship with that group for nearly 20 years. I feel that I should say those years I lived up to the light that I had received. But, praise the Lord, in his abundant mercy and grace, through contact with the Little Mennonite Group prayer meeting, which was conducted in homes in the community, he revealed, he, God, revealed more light to me. Please, dear friend, do not interpret this as a second work of grace. It was instead a growth in grace in the knowledge of the Son of God. The last three or four years I was with the above-mentioned church were years of conviction and remorse. By several passages of Scripture, God, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, brought conviction upon me. This was not because I had backslidden or fallen from grace, but rather I had received more light. As more light <coughs> dawned upon me, I became more and more miserable until I became willing to walk in this newfound light. Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he will know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I received the conviction that in order to maintain my faith, 
And the salvation I receive through faith in the atoning merits of the shed blood on Calvary, I must be willing to do the Lord's will. I would think of the thief on the cross who was ushered into paradise without even being baptized. But then I knew he did not have opportunity to show his willingness to obey the Lord. I saw here marvelous grace and also a demonstration of Jesus' power to save. This is the Lord's doings, and it's marvelous in our eyes. I would reason, since the thief on the cross was saved, why then was it necessary for me to obey the gospel and keep the ordinances of the Lord's house? But I knew the Christian church is now established. Jesus gave her, after the cross, a great commission which incorporated the command to teach observance of all his commandments. As all that was involved dawned upon me, I began to feel as though the wrath of God was upon me. For I was holding the truth in disobedience, Romans 1.18. I found I was guilty of the sin of omission. I remembered that Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14:55. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? Luke 6:46. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Matthew 7:21. The time came for action. But what must I do? I was anything but happy. I remember Jesus said, if ye know these things, happier are ye if ye do them. I decided to take Jesus at his word because I wanted to have part of, with him. The question was, what steps can I take? I felt I could not convert the whole Baptist convention to obedience of, to the full gospel. I spoke to my own pastor. He, along with others, contended that most of the ordinances I called attention to belonged to the customs of another age. They said that the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount belonged to the millennial time. My opposer said to me, we have educated leaders in our church. Certainly if we obey these people, they will know what to do. I replied, Jesus said to his father, I thank thee, Father, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Also, the world by wisdom knew not God, and the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. I suppose they put me in a class of those who are mentally deranged. <clears throat> so what could I do but change my fellowship and come out from them and find fellowship with a group that espouses the full gospel? This I did. But oh, the cost of discipleship. My wife said, if you join the Mennonites, I will leave you. Dear reader, do not think that she did not mean it. But God took care of that. Actually, I went through with that ordeal in my mind. But like Joseph, I can now see the hand of God in it all. It was God's way thus to test my willingness to go with him all the way. By the grace of God, I came to the place, and I'm still there if I know my heart. If you, dear friend, are not happy, come to the foot of the cross, leave self and selfish ambitions there. My mother also objected and pled earnestly in tears. Please don't. It seems as though I can <coughs> hear her now after 21 years. She insisted that my best friends would turn me down and that many other things would happen. Others said, you are violating the fifth commandment. You should honor your father and your mother. Again, the, request, the question returned. What shall I say or do? I remembered God's promise. He that honoreth me, I will honor. And also, we ought to obey God rather than men. Who was I that I should withstand God? So I decided the best way to honor my mother was to wholeheartedly obey my Lord who gave his life for me. My father died when I was nine years old. And some of my friends asked, 
Do you think your father was saved? They knew that I believed he was. Then they asked, Why do you think you must keep any more ordinances than he did? To them I said, That seems easy for me. Jesus said, Whomsoever is given much, much is required. Luke 12, 48. Now that God has revealed his will to me more completely, I am under more obligation to love and obedience to him. For to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James 4, 7. I testify, dear readers, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It was that to me. It was my weapon to meet the gainsayers, to give me courage to press on. Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. I was especially supported by Mark 10, 28 to 30. Finally, my wife replied this way. If you're right, and the ordinances that Mennonite church teaches are right, the Lord will have to show me, not man. You and your preachers need not try. God met the challenge. She studied her Bible and prayed much. Six long years passed before she actually united with our church. She told me not long after that the Lord showed her that he meant what he said in his word, and conviction seized her so strongly that she knew she must submit to the Lord wholeheartedly. In order, in wholehearted obedience in order to remain saved. While on a long trip, she became afraid that she might meet death by accident while she was in her rebellious state. And she promised the Lord that if he would give her a safe trip home, she would unite with the Mennonite church and carry out her convictions fully. She came at her first opportunity and has been faithful and happy ever since. Praise the Lord. Since my wife and I did not know where else to go when we were long convicted by the Word and the Holy Spirit, our plea to the Mennonite church is this. <clears throat> this is a quote. Please try to remain in doctrine and practice in the full gospel, that precious possession that came to us through the blood and tears of earlier generations of the faithful in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that was published in 1950. Now the Sneeds lived uh, the second house above us on the right hand of the road for those that had a beautiful homestead there. A lot of it's been taken down and buildings have been removed. And the white fence that went around the perimeter has been removed and the hedge he trimmed every week out the front was removed. They were hardworking people. He was a painter. Um, he started Southern States or what now, he didn't start, he started a petroleum company that now turned into the Southern State Petroleum of South Boston. Um, I'll tell you one more story. At the Great Depression, Otis went to the bank the night before the collapse and made a huge deposit. I don't know the dollar amount. And the teller knew that he'd never see his money again. But he came to make the deposit. She could not say, don't do this. You don't want to do this. I don't want your money. She took it, and he lost it. And it was a large amount of money. OK, let me see where I'm at. George R. Brunk I was given bishop oversight of the church in Halifax County about 1916. He continued in that position until 1930 when he was asked to be relieved for health reasons. That same year, David Garber from Augusta County, Virginia took up bishop responsibilities. John Garber was ordained minister for the church at Wolf Trap. Clarence Huber was ordained deacon. Four years later, in 1934, David Garber, due to illness, relinquished his bishop work 
and died that same year. Virginia Conference then assigned Joseph Driver as bishop to the Southern District in Halifax County. In 1936, the district affiliation of the congregation was decided by placing under the Southern District of Virginia Conference. In the midst of these leadership, changes in leadership, another blow came to the congregation at Wolf Trap. The building they were renting from the Union Railway, the church building, <laughs> which had been continued to be used for services, burned in 1931. It is thought that sparks from a passing train ignited grass along the tracks started the fire that burned over a large area engulfing the church building. The congregation then went to worship at Wolf Trap School, but the facility fast proved too small. It became clear to everyone they needed to build a church building on their already purchased property. The building committee comprised of Henry Good, Chairman Otis B. Sneed, Secretary, and Clarence Huber, Treasurer, was named to take up the building project. Now, the Wolf Trap School is the unpainted building down here on the right, and so just beyond where Barbara Thaxton lives. And they used that for church temporarily. The Great Depression was still economically affecting the United States at this time. There was not a, not a, not a lot of ready money available for building. However, much credit is due to our bishop, Brother David Garber, for his sympathetic help by way of encouragement, solicitation, labor with his hands toward the completion of the new building. Noah Mack from New Holland, Pennsylvania held meetings at Wolf Trap during the building project. When he boarded the train at South Boston to go home, the train's first stop was at the Wolf Trap station. There a little girl, <coughs> Nita Coger, from the congregation boarded the train to present Mack with a bouquet of flowers. He was so impressed by her kindness and by the work at Wolf Trap that upon returning to Pennsylvania, he raised $500 and sent it for the construction of the church. The new church building exterior was laid up with brick. Its dimensions were 36 by 50 feet. Most of the labor was donated. Construction continued into late 1931, early 1932. The total cost of the building was $1,600. The dedication of the church took place on March 29 of 32 with Brother David Garber preaching the dedication sermon. On the text, he that built all things is God, from Hebrews 3:4. B.B. King also spoke from Joshua 4, 5 through 7. What mean ye by these stones? As its dedication, the new church received a new name. A new generation had risen since Henry Good's choice for the name Pleasant View for the property in 1908. Because the, church, because the building of the church had been blessed with donated labor, a lot of monetary contributions from many churches, Bishop David Garber suggested <coughs> that the church's name be Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us from 1 Samuel 7:12, The name was accepted by the congregation, and Ebenezer has been its identifying name since that time. In 1936, Minister John Garber was asked permission to ordain someone to assist him with ministry. Otis Sneed, this had been five years after he came from the Missionary Baptist to the Mennonite Church, was ordained to fill that need. Three years later, in 1939, John Garber discontinued his ministry and moved to Canada. Otis Sneed faithfully served the congregation for 29 years with no other resident minister, but with a number of deacons who were ordained for Ebenezer. Clarence Huber had been ordained in deacon in 1930, moved to Canada in 1946. Robert Ross, ordained to be deacon in 1947, moved back to Denby in 1949. During his two-year stay, Ross made a contribution, major contribution to church life. He helped organize 
the first summer Bible school in the summer of 1947. Summer Bible school has become an institution at Ebenezer, and when this was written, says was held ever since. Now for you young people, let me tell you about summer Bible school in 1965 that I remember. Uh, it was for two weeks. It was held in the morning. I forget, some 9 to 11.30 or something like that. Um, children were hauled in here in the back of cars, in the back of pickups, which you can't do now. When I say the back of cars, I mean the trunk lid was raised up and they were <laughs> stuffed in there and traveled on 360. Again, not saying you should do those things. I'm just telling you how it was. And on Friday evening, there was a program that each class presented memorization work and songs and their parents were invited to, to come and, uh, and attend. Henry Good, son of the congregation's founder, was ordained in 1952 and faithfully served that position until his death in 1957. Arthur Bronk, who joined membership in 1936, was ordained deacon, also by lot, in December of 1960. He served until he moved back to Ohio in 1972. All the moving in and out of ordained men's families and others was certainly discouraging to those who faithfully labored at South Boston. However, between 1933 and 1940, five of Henry and Cora's married children, Henry and Cora's children married and settled with their spouses in Halifax County. So some of our visitors would be there, their parents were here. Henry and Hattie Coger, local folks, joined the church and two of their daughters. So one of their daughters would have been Vivian Wilburn. Uh, she lived down here where the Gregory's lived. And the other was uh, Margaret Seymour. And she married, her husband's name was Charlie. Vivian's husband was never a member. Uh, their daughter would be Faye Barnhart. Uh, and Melvin Wilburn that lives up here would have been, been one of Vivian's sons. And then the Seymours didn't have any uh, children that you would know that were here at the church. Bessie Hackney became a member and remained faithful to her death. She would have been the uh, grandmother of Ronnie Hackney that lives down here that just lost his wife several weeks ago. And the great-grandmother of Greg Hackney. Um, Blind James Connor joined Ebenezer membership as a young man and continued to walk with the Lord with his walk to church with his cane until his health declined. So Blind James, I don't know when he became blind. Uh, for you, you locals here, the the driveway on this side of Sam Haley's off to the right that wiggles back through there. That's where James lived with there's a a Connor family group down there. James would be the first one here at church in the morning. You walk to church and James would be, might be here at 9.30. He counted the driveways with his sticks, with his stick walking up the road. And uh, often someone would take him back home after church, but he walked to church every morning. That'd be a couple miles, I guess, maybe at least a mile and a half or two miles. Uh, Rhoda Holsinger united with the church in 1961. Um, they would have lived at the rundown Holsinger place there where you turn to go to Bevins, uh, to the left when you turn in, and she lived her last days where the school teachers lived, down here at the um, little white house on the right. Some of Henry Good's grandsons married and brought their wives to South Boston in the 60s. In these ways, the church slowly grew, but no new Mennonites moved into Halifax County in the period between 1949 and 
Otis Sneed, after serving 29 years, desired to retire from full-time ministerial responsibilities. The need for replacement was met <coughs> in January 1965 when Monroe Slayball, a minister from Coshocton, Ohio, moved to the community. Bishop Franklin Weaver of Waynesboro, who replaced Joseph Driver at the latter's, latter's death, or Driver's death in 65, presided at Monroe's installation service in early 1965. During Monroe's 18 years as minister at Ebenezer, baptisms, marriages continued to add new members to the church. A loss came to the congregation in 1971 when Bishop Franklin Weaver was killed in a work accident. Roy Kaiser was then added, Ebenezer was added to his list of bishop responsibilities. A little bit about building uh, renovation. When Ebenezer Midnight Church was built, no plumbing was installed in the building. So for you little children that uh, go out several times during the service, sometimes to the bathroom, you didn't go out the back door in air condition. You went out through the front, you went around this way back to the cemetery, and there were two white Johnny houses out there. And if you were, uh, Fortunate, there wasn't a black snake hanging across the doorway after you got in or uh, poison oak growing up along the side or, or that sort of thing. In the 1960s, a building fund was begun to accumulate money for an addition and upgrades to the church building. A groundbreaking was held on September 20, 1971. The first shovel of dirt was overturned by 86-year-old Cora Good the only living charter member of the church. Monroe Slayball was in charge of the construction project. He and Lewis Good labored long and faithfully through the winter months into the next year to complete the remodeling. Work crews from Waynesboro, Virginia, Elida, Ohio came to help with the project. A foyer with restrooms was added on the main floor. A basement was enlarged to accommodate a kitchen and workroom for the sewing circle. The floor of the existing basement was lowered to allow more headroom. The addition was dedicated to the Lord's service September 10 of 72. For so you younger people, the curbing in the basement that sticks out about this wide and about that tall all the way around, the floor was, the old floor was above that. So there wasn't much headroom. It was very low. So th these men came in. Uh, not with a skid steer or a jackhammer, with sledgehammers, and uh, they set up a conveyor and they broke up the thin cement was there and they shoveled out dirt and they lowered the floor and then they exposed the foundation. Um, so that curb was placed there to square up the foundation and then a new floor was poured in there. Okay. Uh, during Monroe Slayball's tenure of ministry, Virginia Conference began to make changes in its practice and administration with which some members of Ebenezer felt uncomfortable. There were some of the membership who wanted to join a more conservative Southeastern Mennonite Conference. The congregation divided at the end of October 1983. Settlement was made between the two factions. Member who decided to stay with Virginia began with Virginia Conference, began to hold services in Cluster Springs, Virginia, uh, at, in a building that was a former Presbyterian church, not where they're at now. They met in that old Presbyterian church for on this five, six, seven, eight years. Uh, they called their congregation Faith Mennonite, and my father took up uh, ministerial responsibilities there. Sixteen members who chose, chose to join Southeastern Conference continued to worship at Ebenezer, the church that's still called by that name. They, because they were left with no minister, Lloyd Hartzler from Harrisonburg, Virginia, was assigned ministerial responsibilities at Ebenezer. He and his wife moved to South Boston and lived here for three and a half years. John Risser of Harrisonburg, 
became the bishop of the congregation, and John Weaver from West Virginia served as deacon until he was later ordained minister. At that time, Franklin Burkholder took up deacon responsibilities at Ebenezer. During this time, several Mennonite families from other parts of the country moved to South Boston and became part of the church. At least one local family joined after being convicted by its spiritual teachings. This growth was an encouragement to the congregation which had been left with a reduced membership following the division in 1983. On November 29, 1987, Gerald Good from South Boston was ordained minister at Ebenezer. He was mentored by Lloyd Hartzler for six months, and then the Hartzlers returned to the Shenandoah Valley. In 1988, Ben Grider, a Southeastern Conference deacon, moved to South Boston and took up deacon responsibilities at Ebenezer. When Gerald Good and his family answered the call to missionary work in Puerto Rico, a ministerial replacement was needed for him. Nathan Good was ordained minister in 1993 to fill that need. John Risser continued as Ebenezer Bishop until both Nathan and Gerald were ordained bishops on November 5 of 2000. Nathan Good was given responsibility over the Ebenezer congregation in two churches in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, Gerald served as bishop over uh, two churches in the valley and two congregations in Puerto Rico. Nathan's bishop ordination left ministerial vacancy at Ebenezer, and that vacancy was filled when Kelvin Good was ordained minister June 10 of 2001. And I don't have the further ordinations. Someone needs to pull those together and uh, compile that. <clears throat> the facts, the history's there, but just don't have it organized here. Membership at Ebenezer has fluctuated through the years. Uh, sources don't always agree exact membership. However, um, that there were only five members in 1906. Succeeding years, membership ranged from five in 1906 to 45 in 1922. Average membership tally was from 1904 to 1940 was 26. Membership average in those years was 34. From 1961 to 1970, the average member, number of members was 41. In the 1980s, the average membership was 24. It was during a later period that the church divided and the number of members was reduced to 16. Uh, in the decade of the 1990s, membership was in the 51, was in the low 50s. Ebenezer families had always sent their children to Halifax County Public Schools through the years. It was not until the fall of 1983 there was a church school at Ebenezer. Since then it has been a great blessing to the congregation. And Lloyd Hartzler was one of the driving factors when he was here. He, he stressed we need to get our children in our own school. We need to get them out of public school. Um, Okay, there's another section here on music. Music has always been an important part of Ebenezer church life. Henry H. Good and his wife, who pioneered the congregation, spent time on Saturday evenings in music instruction and singing hymns with their children. Their attempts to instill a love of good music in their children were not lost. Uh, with their son, Henry, uh, who was asked in 1908 to teach a singing school at the church. And Henry Good carried on the tradition of music instruction, singing in his own family, which affected congregational singing in a positive way. <coughs> at Ebenezer, one Sunday evening a month for many years is devoted to singing. Several music rudiment classes through the years taught young people to read music and sing in parts. In 1964, Ebenezer held its first hymn sing the first Sunday of May, when the church was filled with people who enjoyed congregational singing in special groups. 
and that continues to today. <clears throat> the influence of Ebenezer Church has, begun, be, has gone beyond the South Boston, Virginia community. Many of the ordained men <clears throat> who left the church in early years went on to serve in churches and other communities and states. At least four men who were members of Ebenezer have been ordained since they left South Boston. Several young people have taught Bible school in other communities. Young men spent time in 1W service, which took them out of Halifax County. School teaching has taken members out of state. Other short-term ministries have directed Ebenezer folks to Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Haiti, Paraguay, Jamaica, Grenada, Dominican Republic, Canada, and Ukraine. Various missionaries have been called from Ebenezer. The first was Mary M. Good, the daughter of the church founder, who spent many years at a girls' school in India. Gerald Joyce Good and family served in Puerto Rico, where Southeastern Conference had two mission churches. David and Joanne Good and family spent three years in southern Belize. And at the time of this writing, Crystal, I think, was in Poland. And, uh, Melanie was getting ready to go to Bangladesh. <coughs> Missionary activities with a domestic flavor enlarged the vision of Ebenezer members. During the middle years of the congregation's history, the young people utilized part of the church property to raise a field corn and lima beans and sell as, part of, as a missionary project. Bean shelling and corn husking provided fellowship and opportunity to work together, and the proceeds helped to fill a variety of needs. The Ladies' Sewing Circle, which began in the mid-50s, created opportunities for service and camaraderie. For many years, they met in homes once a month, uh, and it still carries on today. So I'll just say a little bit to you young people. So here where the gym is, it used to be a field and there were probably three or four rows of uh, butter beans from down here about midway of the gym back to the woods and then the rest of it was field corn and so we'd have a corn shucking and you'd pick and shell butter beans uh, be summer activities when you didn't have uh, other things to do like volleyball and uh, the other games you play. So part of the way things were, uh, I think it's pretty accurate from at least the parts that I remember past 65 and other parts are documented. So uh, yeah, let's learn from history and encourage one another to press on. Thank you. <laughs>